Well, good morning, everybody. It's the 4th of April, 2006, and it's time for our morning drive. And I am not going to be able to get to human nature this morning because I am going to take a slight detour to a contemporary event. Now, the contemporary event is, as you know or may know, there's a lot of issues heating up down south along the border between the United States of America and the people's state of Mexico. So I would like to talk a little bit about immigration, just so at least my perspectives or what I could consider to be the DRO-based perspectives on immigration could be clearer. So immigration, first and foremost, is one of these words that is put together to differentiate it from something that is morally acceptable. So immigration is pictures, sort of images of multi-generational families arriving at a country on boxcars and requiring lots of services and quarantines and so on. And so immigration is a word that is used to differentiate it from the ordinary human act of moving. Is moving is, is all it is. I mean, does it really make a difference if you move from New York to Houston or whether you move from uh, Niagara to uh, Buffalo, or from uh, the Canadian side of Niagara Falls to Buffalo? Obviously, uh, there's a bigger temperature difference when you go to Houston. There's um, uh, probably a bigger cultural difference. Uh, so is there really any way that we would be able to call immigration other than the simple act of moving? And when you simply call it moving, then you understand that there really is no uh, significant moral issue. Can you imagine that if you wanted to move to Houston, that you had to go through a multi-year process to be able to move there? Can you imagine that if you wanted to move to Houston, that you couldn't get a job for the first couple of years, that you had to go through a rigorous process of vetting, that you had to get lawyers? Can you imagine how crazy that would feel, how fascistic that would feel? Well... Welcome, my friends, to the world of the immigrant. Now, you cannot get rid of a human being's desire to live free. We all know, we all know that we only have one life to live. And the degree to which we live it in slavery is the degree to which that life is meaningless. Because you can't create meaning in the face of compulsion. You really, really can't. I mean, I know you can read, I think it was Victor Franzel's Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about concentration camps and... Yeah, you can find some crazy spiritual stuff out of um, an extreme subjection to violence, but that's just calling the scar tissue that comes out of brutality spirituality, which is actually (laughs) what spirituality is to begin with. So I don't really believe that that gets you anywhere. But human beings are always, always, always going to want to be free, and they will do anything to become free. See, I am tying the one in human nature to come. But um, human beings really do want to become free. They will do just about anything. And other human beings who deny them that right to be free are fascists. I mean, I don't know how to put it any more delicately. There is no other way to put it that I can think of. And it is a stone evil to say to another human being, I can tell you where to live and I can tell you where not to live. Because you're just using the argument for morality. It's pretty simple to figure that out. Does everyone have that right? Can I tell you where to live? Can I tell you where not to live? Can we both stand in a room pointing at each other and saying, Thou shalt not live here, thou shalt live there? Well, of course, that would be a a ridiculous right to have. So it can't be universal. And because it's not universal, it's not moral. So the history of immigration, I'll just sort of touch on briefly here because I'll need some more statistics to talk about it if it's of interest to people. But... 
the history of immigration has basically been an enormous tide. It's like a tidal slosh of people racing around the world looking for any scrap of freedom that they can find. Immigration has been the only competition that governments have really faced in terms of, I mean, other than sort of coups, which are pretty rare throughout Western history. But the only competition that governments face is, um, is uh, emigration, immigration, moving. <laughs> and so when people do move from one country to another, they are voting with their feet and they are saying, I want to be in a place that has some kind of freedom. Now, when that country does actually have freedom, then there's no problem. I mean, <laughs> if you look at the millions upon millions upon millions of people who voted with their feet and moved to America in the 19th century, it's the greatest immigration in history. It's the greatest movement of human beings uh, in history. Well, if you look at that, you don't see any particular strain in the economy. In fact, the economy in the 19th century in America was far more stable, far more stable than it is today. But uh, what happens is when you start to get government control over the economy, then you start to get the creation of, uh, well, a number of things. So we'll, we'll call special interest groups the first group that gets created. right? The special interest group is those who represent and profit from the transfer of wealth to a particular group. So I'm not even going to say that they represent that group. They certainly don't. <laughs> I mean, they really don't represent that group. For instance, I mean, in, in the upcoming series on Social Security, we'll briefly be talking about, well, sorry, <laughs> you'll be listening to, I probably won't be briefly talking about it, but is it in the interest of old people for there to be Social Security? Well, of course not. Now they're completely dependent upon a government system which is going to collapse. So, of course it's not to their interest. Is there Are there groups, the uh, American Association for the Retired People or whatever the heck it's called, that constantly push for higher benefits? Well, sure. Sure, because they get well paid for doing so, both by the government uh, in certain situations and by members of their groups who've been subject to, you know, I guess at that point, 60 years of 70 years of propaganda. Sure, they're well paid to do it, but... It's not to the benefit of the members, for heaven's sakes. I mean, as we talked about in the series on racism, it's scarcely to the benefit of, uh, black, of the black community that they have social leaders out there calling for more socialism uh, because that is simply going to diminish the opportunities at the lowest end of the economic ladder, which is what they need to climb to get out of their squalor, right? I mean, those who are in that situation. So you get these special interest groups, so one thing that people become concerned about is the creation of special interest groups. And that makes them fearful of outsiders coming in, right? It makes them fearful. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is really going on, though, which is that people are afraid of uh, welfare recipients. People are afraid of people who are going to get sort of Medicare and Medicaid and all of the enormous showering of government programs that are uh, currently burying the will and initiative of the American people alive in its socialist tomb. So people are very much afraid of other people coming in and not working. You see, this is what violence... Violence breeds fear. Violence breeds paranoia. Violence breeds hostility. Violence has significant after-effects on the personality. And violence which continues and escalates only makes that worse. 
This is the brotherhood of man that is generated by government programs, by the forcible redistribution of wealth. We become a bunch of jackals snapping at a barely meated carcass, snarling at each other, pushing each other back, biting at each other, all because we want to get the diminishing returns, knowing that when it's gone, we're going to starve. So we, we're all trying to get as much food as possible so that when we do begin to starve, we can hopefully sort of survive until we can get to the next kill. This is the, um, the togetherness of the species that comes about from centralized violence. This is what the state does to people. And that's not human nature. See, I'm going to continue to tie it in for you. You know, that's the kind of interweaving show, that the kind of quality interweaving that um, I hope that you've come to expect from these morning drives and afternoon drives. So when you begin to put social programs in place, then you begin to create a category of the needy, right? Those who need the benevolence and money of others. That's benevolence in, a, in sort of quotes, right? And once you begin to create that forcible in, uh, distribution, then you will become terribly afraid of those who have needs coming along, right? So you start to hear these stories, which is, you know, one guy comes over and he's like uh, an itinerant farm worker. He's an apple picker. And, you know, Ahmed a Apple Picker, I don't think that's a real name, so I don't think I'm going to offend anyone. If it is a real name, wow, I'd really like to hear your story. <laughs> So Ahmed Applepicker comes along, and he's working for peanuts, uh, or uh, perhaps, dare I say it, apples? No, I'm not going to say it. Um, and then he uses the leverage of the existing immigration system to bring over his ten elderly parents, because he was raised in a commune. <laughs> his, his pregnant wife, his ten elderly parents, his do-nothing loafer brother-in-law, is all these people. So you get one minor, minor, minor boost to the economy, which is Ahmed Applepicker doing his uh, thing under the hot sun, uh, getting the apples. And then you end up with this enormous drain on the economy because all of these other people are coming along and taking all this welfare and all these social services and so on. Now, everybody gets sort of down in their gut that the government is not going to stop this. I'm not saying this is what always happens. I mean, it would be far from accurate to say this. I actually think that, uh, in my experience, immigrants work a heck of a lot harder than most uh, people in Canada who seem to loaf their way through uh, high school uh, without jobs and then loaf their way through university without jobs and then spend a good, sweet deal of time. <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, I don't, I don't mind particularly. I worked my way through high school and university and then... Um, uh, worked to get into my master's, uh, worked for a year to get save up money for my master's, and then I've been working very hard since I got my first job when I was 11, right? So it's hard for me to, I mean, it might just be <laughs> sublimated envy, I don't know, but it's kind of hard for me to, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, it's just <laughs> to, to have sympathy for those people who uh, didn't have jobs, so maybe I'm being too cruel. But what I was rem reminded of was a story of a friend of mine who's an economist, was always sort of the golden intellectual boy of the family, and his brothers, while very nice, were not considered to be quite as academically gifted. And <laughs> I was at uh, lunch with them some years back, and the middle, he's the eldest, and the middle child was, uh, had a story where he's saying that um, uh, he was cutting a hedge, and <laughs> he was uh, up on top of the hedge, because it was such a tall hedge, and he's cutting the hedge, and it's windy, and the bits of hedge are being blown into his eyes, and there's dust up there, and it's, you know, it's just terrible. And he's looking over, and his eldest brother is 
<laughs> sitting by the pool under a, a nice big umbrella and is reading a book, uh, some sort of book on economics, and <laughs> their mother is bringing him iced tea in a pitcher. And <laughs> there was just this feeling that this eldest brother could do no wrong and was always catered to, and it was I thought it was a funny story. He was fairly good-natured about it. I'm sure there's some truth in there that the family's not picking up that would be worth discussing, but uh, that's that's sort of sort of how I feel about some people who seem to have this loaf about mentality. And I think I talked about once before somebody I knew when I was uh, in the theater world, who did a degree in theater, then did a master's in theater, and then got government grants to do theater in Yellowknife, and then got government grants to go and study theater in Germany. And at some point, it was like, dude, do you ever think about giving back? Like, do you ever think about maybe getting a job and giving something back to the taxpayers that they actually want, <laughs> rather than just taking all their money and calling it a career? I mean, ugh, what a parasite. So, anyway, so, back from the segue, I've managed to pull myself back from the riptide, and we're now striking towards the shore again. So, the issue of government programs is really what has a lot to do with making people fearful and hostile towards outsiders. Now, and it's also because people don't have a very strong understanding of economics. So they think that people who come in from, you know, they move from Mexico or wherever, and they think that those people then are going to need things and take things and so on. And that's really, seems to me, not, not the case at all. It really does seem to me to be the case that when people move from a poorer country to the United States, they are bringing an enormous amount of suppressed or repressed demand with them. I mean, as soon as somebody moves into the economy, they have not just, uh, it's not just sort of what they can give, it's what they want that makes them valuable to trade with. Now, let's say that, and we're talking in the absence of a welfare state, right, in, in a free society. In a free society, if you move and bring your ten parents and your do-nothing brother-in-law and your pregnant wife to a free country, then by God, you're going to need some goods, right? You're going to need to work really hard in order to be able to provide for your family and to take care of your uh, near baker's dozen of, <laughs> of itinerant parents. And so you're going to bring all of those needs and so other people are going to have to provide. You're going to have to trade for them. So the poorer that someone is and the more dependence that someone ha- has in a free society, the more you want them to move to, to where you are because they are really, 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 really going to work hard. And if they find that they can't make ends meet, then they're going to go to some local charity or whatever, their church or whatever nonsense they belong to, and try and get some help from them and... So, but they're you know not going to be preying on you. I mean, the idea that they're going to turn to a life of crime is you know not not too uh, not too predictable. Right? People who move to uh, countries with more opportunity uh, don't tend to be interested in a life of crime. Those who are interested in a life of crime are either petty criminals in Mexico, or if they're really ambitious, they join el banditos. They join the government in order to really uh, prey on people in a structured and safe manner, right? I mean, you don't want to become some... <laughs> you don't want to be some criminal people can shoot back. You want to be some bureaucrat or politician where you get the army behind you and you can't be touched. I mean, that, that's where you want to go if you are an enterprising thief. You don't move to L.A. and start picking people's pockets or holding them up or anything. I mean, that's just not how it works. Now, the other thing, too, is that 
in an advanced economy, as you're probably aware, I mean, there's lots of jobs that need to be done that aren't automated for whatever reason. And, yeah, it's not like the average American wants to do them. I mean, I don't see, you know, you open those little matchboxes and they say, what do you want to be? And you want to be a, uh, a security specialist, a security guide, a bookkeeper, you know, those little checkboxes. I don't see, and maybe I don't think it's just because there's not enough room to print it. I generally don't see something like, do you want to be the guy selling oranges on the median? <laughs> That's a career for you. I also don't get a lot of that stuff from the Internet, like where... Uh, make thousands in your spare time. <laughs> Sell citrus fruits from medians. All the exhaust you can breathe. <laughs> I mean, that really is not... Uh, now, obviously, it's something that people want because eh, it's nice to have a couple of oranges to take to the office. So it's a useful service because otherwise they wouldn't be there. But I don't see that there's a whole lot of courses in business school leading you to uh, managing a fleet of people uh, handing out oranges in medians. So it's something that needs to be done. You think of fruit picking. You think of... Um, really base construction work, like putting up, like not the sort of craftsmanship of putting up monster homes, which of course, I mean, could be a vast number of people who move to the United States who are excellent at that, but I'm thinking about people who are moving because they have no opportunities whatsoever in their home country, so they move to the United States, and maybe they have no skills. Let's just say they're a farmer, and they, uh, they grew coffee, which, you know, is not big if they move to Minnesota, and so they have to do something else, and they don't have money for school, so they become a construction, like a, a totem, uh, a bagman and totem kind of construction worker who's moving stuff around, or a road worker, or whatever. Well, there are people who uh, will come and do that, and it's not like those jobs are in big demand. Now, interestingly enough, those jobs are in larger demand when they're unionized. I mean, unions, you've got to understand the relationship between unions and immigrants is not uh, kissy-kissy. It's pretty hostile. Uh, well, it's pretty hostile one way. It's not like the average uh, Mexican farm worker has any uh, luck uh, <laughs> opposing the, um, the, uh, the big unions. I mean, there's just not a chance. He'd just get rubbed out, right? He'd, uh, he'd pull a hoffer and vanish. But uh, unions who have pumped up wages for menial positions because they'd rather shaft the consumer and get paid a lot. And, of course, they have an interest in raising wages, not because they care about their workers, but because more wages means more union dues. And also, more wages means that you desperately need the union more. I mean, let's just say that there's some job in the free market, which is a, uh, a totem kind of... Uh, tote them, that's sort of what, you know, a totem kind of uh, construction job. We're just moving stuff around that's going to pay you like six bucks an hour because, you know, it's really not that valuable and there's lots of people. It doesn't require any skills in English and it doesn't require any skills in anything. It's just like you point, you move, right? The snack in courtwood kind of jobs. So six bucks an hour and then you get some union in there that boosts that thing to 14 bucks an hour over time. Well, of course, if you're that guy and you're now like 40 and you've been basically stacking courtwood for... Uh, 20 years, and you've got yourself to 14 or 15 bucks an hour through the union, well, you're obviously pretty hyperinflated when it comes to real-world wages. You're not actually doing that well. Now, of course, you'd be okay if the government got rid of, you've got rid of the government, you could still get by at six bucks an hour pretty well, but right, in the situation that you're in, you're really desperately dependent upon the uh, union, right, and the government protection, because you know that if the union gets busted and the market becomes open, that there's going to be swarms of people 
who are going to be more than happy to work for six bucks an hour and count themselves happy and lucky and feel that it's a great step up in life. Now, you're 40, and you've spent your entire career stacking cordwood, and you don't really have any skills that are worth that much because you've been sort of drugged by this. You've been bribed into becoming a hyper-undeveloped human being, right? You've been bribed into becoming a sort of narcoleptic skill vacuum. <laughs> you're probably, you know, watching TV and drinking and so on, and you, you sort of bummed your life around, right? And so what's going to happen if you're in this situation? Your wages have been hyperinflated. You've got this lifestyle. You've got you, your brain has been decaying. You, it's going to be very tough for you to retrain. You become entirely dependent upon this money. You're worse than a drug addict, right? At least a drug addict has an identifiable problem that methadone can help and they can fix. But you have a problem which is dependence upon viol- the, the income of violence. And so it's kind of hard. I mean, you're basically sort of like a... A guy who gets his own, like, you're like a mafia wife, really. That's, that's your basic, um, uh, I guess, moral standpoint. Although, I guess, in some ways, it's even worse than a mafia wife because, like I say, if a mafia wife, if the mafia goes bust, you can maybe find somebody else to marry. But you're really wedded to violence and you're getting great profit from violence. And so there's going to be lots of problems for you if the uh, union ever loses control or if the minimum wage ever gets erased. So you've become completely dependent on the brutality of state and union power. So you're going to be very hostile towards uh, immigrants in particular, right? I mean, you're not going to be hostile towards uh, European immigrants, and you're not going to be hostile to, you know, I guess, the Commonwealth immigrants, right? But you are going to be hostile towards people who have a similar skill set to yours who are coming in who are going to be worth uh, a lot less. Now, one of the things that, uh, and I'll just sort of, this is not a side, it's, but it's something that we sort of need to talk about for a minute or two before I continue, uh, I got an email from a very uh, kind and smart listener, uh, as all are, uh, who uh, has uh, recently moved to, to Europe, and he had went through some significant, um, I guess, doubts about the validity of the free market. And we'll talk about this more another time. But he was saying that the last time he was in Europe, there were no particular problems, but um, now there are beggars on the street, and there are huge problems because... Eastern Europe has opened up, and a lot of manufacturing and a lot of jobs have moved over to uh, to Eastern Europe. And my particular opinion about all of that is that that is just awful. That is just awful. I mean, in general, of course it's terrible when the free market opens up when people have been used to getting the fruits of violence through preferential legislation. It's brutal. It's absolutely horrible. You're not going to believe what's going to happen to the old people when Social Security goes bust. It's going to be dreadful. That's exactly why you don't want government programs to begin with. I mean, if quitting heroin was just snapping your fingers, then heroin would be fun to try. <laughs> I mean, the fact that it's so addictive and so destructive is exactly why you can't have it to begin with. It's exactly why you have to fight against its it being set up to begin with. And the longer it goes, the worse it gets. So, I mean, people say to me, oh, my, what's going to happen? Social Security, we're going to no money. The old people are going to have to double up and triple up. And they go, yes, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. I mean, they were around when the system was put in place and didn't fight against it. So my sympathy level isn't enormously high. But it is going to be terrible. And that's exactly why violence should not be allowed. <laughs> I mean... Of course, it's going to be awful. Some guy says, and says, I want to quit crack. Yeah, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be absolutely horrible. 
But that's why you should, you know, look, kids. This is why you have a you have a video of somebody trying to quit crack and vomiting and all, dying and and feeling like they're going to die and and uh, you know sometimes dying. And you say, hey, look, kids, this is why you shouldn't get involved with crack because it's pretty bad. And this is the same thing with government programs. So this person who's out in in Europe. Well, you know, he's looking at the effects of what happens when a free market opens up relative to where you are and you've been enormously privileged and the laws don't relax in order to allow you to compete, right? So if you suddenly have Eastern European workers willing to work for half your wages but you don't drop your minimum wage, then of course a lot of people are going to become unemployed. But my God, to blame that for the free market. Oh, my Lord. I mean, how unjust can, can, could that be? It's ridiculous. Of course people want to blame other people who are willing to work for less because they've been raised in government schools and so they're economically they're retarded and morally they're retarded bordering on well corrupt and the same thing occurs with people's perception of immigration immigration is viewed as a threat why why because people's wages are inflated that's the unjust part now there's also this fear that when you get enough people moving to a free country, they're going to bring along all of these desires for socialism, and they're going to then vote <laughs> socialism in because they are from a more totalitarian society and so on. Now, I think the key word in there is from. From. From, 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 from. Because they're from that society and they've left it, we might think that they value freedom just a little, little, little bit, I think. I mean, <laughs> if I leave uh, the mafia at grave danger to myself and trek all the way to cross to another town and set myself up and get a job, am I bringing a mafia infection to my new <laughs> town? Am I? <laughs> hey, you know what? I got out of the mafia because they were going to uh, they were going to kill me and they're still looking for me but I got out and I I'm not even in the witness protection program I've just I've left I've given everything up I've left everything behind and I've set up a new life here are the people really worried that I'm going to start a new mafia I mean <laughs> how crazy is that I mean what you want is these people are like you want me in that town in case the mafia ever comes because ha- guess who's going to be fighting the hardest against the mafia the guy who's going to be fighting hardest against the mafia is the guy who knows the most about the mafia, who can see it coming. I bet you dollars to donuts that the people who've come from totalitarian regimes are the ones who hate government power the most. I, and and when did <laughs> and when did um, when did we really get socialism in the twentieth century? Was there a huge bulge in immigration from totalitarian countries during that time? Of course not. That all happened in the 19th century. And who sat around getting us the worst totalitarian system in the world, which is the public school system? Well, my friends, it was the uh, the wasps who were afraid of the Catholics. I mean, this is uh, obvious, right? I mean, people set up barriers to immigration and they get things like state school going. School? I think I've hit a new high. It's a high C in the podcast, quite pleased. (laughs) It's a passionate squeak, (laughs) I promise you. But they uh, it's it's the home country that sets up government programs to protect their own to keep others out to have the excuse to keep it because you know everybody recognizes that culture is just scar tissue deep down right and that if you get a lot of other cultures that come in 
that keeping your own children in your own culture is going to just start to appear like bigotry, right? It's just going to start to appear like silly, right? You, you won't be able to use the argument for morality anymore if it's based on culture. So that's pretty important. I mean, most parents will bully their children into doing this, that, or the other based on the argument for morality. When you get a lot of different cultures coming in, then the argument for morality starts to become kind of wrong, right? It becomes kind of silly, which is why you get some conf- such conflict in the second generation of people who have more freedom than the first generation of people who come in as immigrants. So what's happening right now? Well, I don't know what particular political moves are afoot. I do believe that the government does want to start uh, stationing troops in America, right? The Posse Comitatus, I think it is. The government does want to start stationing troops in America, and the best way that it can do that is to provoke a border crisis, right? I mean, there's no no doubt about that. If you provoke a border crisis with the... uh, with Mexico, then you can have an excuse to station troops uh, in the uh, in the country, and that's uh, something that the government is fairly keen on doing, and well, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, it uh, it's going to cement their power internally. Now, there's always some risk. I mean, governments uh, have a problem stationing troops internally, to some degree, because they're worried about a coup. I don't think that's particularly the case in America, because there's still a lot of propaganda. It's certainly not the case for this the lifetimes, like the next 20 years, the lifetimes of these politicians, but my guess is that they are provoking uh, a border crisis in order to get troops uh, stationed uh, on uh, in America. And, of course, the best way to do that is to say that we are seriously considering absolutely curtailing and criminalizing and this and that, then what you're going to get is you're going to... I mean, people aren't just going to get up and leave America, right? But if you say that... As of this date, and they're going to put it in the future, right? They're going to say, as of this date, six months from now or 12 months from now or even three months from now, there's going to be a crackdown, there's going to be this, and anybody who comes into the country after that time will be considered a, a criminal. I mean, there'll be some something that's time-dependent or something like that, or, or at least there's rumors that it's going to be imminent, even if they don't say specifically what time it is out into the future. So what's going to happen is you're going to get a massive, massive swell of people who are sort of sitting on the fence, so to speak, about whether to move to America or not. So you're going to get this enormous, uh, huge, massive swell of people coming across the border because they're afraid that there's going to be some sort of clampdown that's imminent. So people who've sort of been humming and hawing and saying, well, I'm keeping my options open, I'm thinking about it, well, you're going to get uh, them suddenly saddling up and riding hard for the border because they realize or they feel or they fear that something is going to happen that's going to make it much more difficult. Especially if there's, if they grant any kind of amnesty, right? Probably what's going to happen is they're going to end up with some kind of amnesty uh, of some kind. And so that's going to cause a massive influx of uh, people coming across the border. It's going to be like now or never, right? So what's going to happen is then the government is going to say, well, you know, we're concerned about immigration. And so now if you look at the statistics, if you look at the statistics, you know, immigration uh, has doubled. Illegal immigration has doubled over the past couple of months. And so we've got to seal these borders. <laughs> seal these borders. I love this, right? Because, of course, what's going to happen is, and this I'm taking from Harry Brown, uh, what's going to happen is pretty obvious, right? I mean, you're going to have to start carrying national ID cards. I mean, this is all perfectly inevitable and perfectly predictable. And you're going to start carrying national ID cards, and is that going to affect the illegal, illegal immigrants? Well, of course not. I mean, of course not. All it means is that you're going to end up carrying a national ID card, and you're going to be able to be stopped on the street, and you need to see your papers and so on. Now, the one thing that the government does love about political correctness is that 
it uh, you can't exclude whites from laws, right? So it's not a lot of white Mexicans who've moved to the United States. There are usually some visible signs that you're Latino, and so a sensible law, if you know, if you were not, if you were sort of dictatorial but not politically correct, would be to say, if you look Mexican, then we can stop you, right? But of course, discrimination is oh, you have to be everyone, right? So yeah, the wasps are going to get it, everyone's going to get it, and uh, blacks are going to get it, and Chinese are going to get it. Ah, uh, if you just come over the border from Mexico. And so everyone's going to have to carry these ID cards. You're going to get the uh, army is going to be uh, stationed in the country and do absolutely nothing for illegal immigration because those people are going to come across anyway. Because, of course, the more people that uh, are interested in coming across, the more that there's going to be these underground railroads to get them over, right? And the more demand there is for this kind of uh, service, the more people are going to... um, uh, come over, and therefore the more there's going to be people help them who help them come over, there's going to be nothing but fake ID cards floating around, there's going to be all of these ways to bypass the laws, there's going to be all these experts who pop up on how to tie these things up in court indefinitely, there's going to be I mean, all of these, I mean, the people who come across are going to have an entire network of people who are going to help them, I mean, that's for sure, right? But that network is not going to spring up to help the average American who's going to have to start carrying an ID card. And there's going to be all those problems. I mean, it's not going to do a damn thing. It's actually going to increase, right? Because the more this underground railroad is set up to help immigrants over the border, the more they're going to come, right? So whatever the government does is going to absolutely increase immigration. I mean, other than to, well, actually, you know, anything. Because, you know, America's still a pretty sweet place in a lot of ways, right? So, I mean, compared to the other hell holes in the world. So whatever the government does is going to increase immigration. Uh, it's going to increase the negative effects of immigration in some ways. But for sure, uh, what you're going to get is, with that increased immigration, is you're going to get a better pipeline, right? A wider, a bigger, more helpful pipeline of getting people into the country. So whatever's going to happen is going to be horrible for the average American Joe who's going to end up with ID cards and the troops stationed domestically for the first time in U.S. history. And it's going to do nothing but increase inflation over, uh, sorry, in, in, increase immigration overall. But the only thing I can say about that is that uh, increased immigration is probably the, the only way that the American economy is going to survive for more than a sort of 10, 10 or so years, in my particular opinion. And we'll talk about that a little bit more this afternoon. Thank you so much for listening.